Jesus, I'm aware that we might be feeling weary, sick, uh, tired, even croaky today. Um, I pray that you would, you would speak to us at a deeper level than our ears, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would build your kingdom here, um, that you would bring genuine transformation at the, the level of the heart in your people today that, that leads to your name being honoured and leads to our, our joy and reviving, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now, um, oh, hang on. Hang on. Um, oops, sorry. Um, do you guys know who Jim Elliot is, or was, or is? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. So, so uh, in in 1956, uh, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and three other uh, blokes and and a few of their wives uh, went and were missionaries to a people in. Uh, Ecuador, uh, to the Ecuadorian Huaudani, don't quote my pronunciation of that name, people. Um, they had a heart for this tribe because they were an unreached people. Uh, they were a people who had not heard the word of the gospel. In fact, they hadn't really been contacted by anyone from outside their tribe. They, they went, they learned some of the language, just a minimal amount of the local language from a girl from the tribe who had left the tribe and gone and joined the rest of society, um, but yeah, it was a, it was a real uh, difficult call for them. Some of them had kids on the mission field, some and some of them didn't just bring kids with them, but had kids on the mission field. Some of them got married. Jim Elliot got married to his wife, who he met on the mission field. Um, but anyway, they went to make contact with these people who lived deep in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Um, and they, they first tried to do that by, they got an aeroplane and they flew past the, the, the uh, gatherings of these uh, nomadic people and flew around in circles with a bucket lowered on a rope, uh, which they would put a gift into to show that they came in peace, that they wanted to be friends. And they'd fly in circles that were tight enough that the bucket stayed roughly in the same place uh, and, they, and the, the, the people could take the thing out of the bucket. It was, it was a genuinely fascinating aeronautical manoeuvre, if nothing else. Um, but they did this for a while, and they also would fly by and, and yell out uh, phrases of, of peace and of welcome and of, of friendship that they had learned from this girl who had left the tribe. Uh, and eventually they got to the point where they thought, all right, we're ready, we we're ready to try and make direct contact. And they, they found a little um, sandbar in, in the river nearby that... that uh, stuck out and that they thought they could use as a landing strip. So they, they came and they landed there. Um, and the first night, this was the, the five blokes went out. Um, uh, the first night they, uh, it went really quite well, actually. Uh, they, they met three people from the tribe, uh, a man and two women. Uh, the bloke went for a, a flight with them. In fact, he went for a couple of them because he was so excited about this flying machine they had. Uh, and, and it just went exceptionally well. Uh, but unfortunately, the next day, it did not go so well. Um, Robin's nodding her head because she knows how this story ends, unfortunately. Well, how this part of the story ends, unfortunately. Uh, 
They're due to largely a misunderstanding. Uh, this very violent tribe, that was a, a tendency of the tribe, uh, misinterpreted the arrival of these people. Uh, due to a, a lie from, from one of their own people who was saving face uh, in a complicated mix-up, the rest of the tribe decided the best thing to do would be to go and to kill these five missionaries as quickly as they could to stop them from corrupting their people, which is what they did. Uh, a, a tribe of people armed only with spears went to this sandbank and killed five men armed with guns who did not kill any of them. They went because they wanted the news of Jesus to be shared with them at any cost. And Jim Elliot, who uh, was one of those five men, wrote this in his diary sometime before that event, which really summarises the call that we have from the word today. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the call on our lives that we hear in the word. We are called to gain that which cannot be lost. For the set, and even at the cost of losing what we can't keep anyway, even our lives. We're going to return to that story a little bit later on, but for the, for the last few messages in First Peter, we've been working through this section of the letter uh, where Peter called the people of God to live in relation to the world around them in a way that displays the glory of God, that uh, displays the hope that we have in God. He's spoken to us as citizens and he said that we are to submit to the governments and the authorities above us that, that we are under, but out of ultimate submission to God. He's spoken to us as, as workers and as members of the social order and, and told us to do good submissively, but ultimately out of submission to God. And he's spoken to us as, as men and women, primarily uh, in the context of marriage and, and particularly to wives, because he's been focusing on the, the more submitting party throughout this whole se section. Uh, and he's, he's told, us, told them to do good submissively so that the husband might be one for Christ if he does not believe. Even if, even if they're married to a, a husband who is an unbeliever there to have a submissive, submissive heart towards him. That is not to say that she submits in everything to him. By all means not. She submits to God only. But she has a heart of wanting to follow her husband even if she can't. And so in all of those cases, we don't submit to the point of sin and we uh, don't just submit blindly, but we are called to do good whilst following the authorities above us so that they might see something of the grace of God affecting our lives. And now uh, we come to, to chapter 3 uh, from verse 8 to 22, and Peter is going to broaden that call out now and breathe motivation, breathe life into it, uh, into this life of doing good now. And what he says here really basically breaks down to, to two points. First, Christians suffer like Christ for the hope that is theirs in him. And second, the suffering of Christ provides our example and establishes our hope. Now, these themes might sound familiar. This is something that Peter runs us through again and again. It's just something our hearts need again and again. Uh, first, he writes this. Read it with me. Finally, all of you, and in those words, sorry, he indicates that he's concluding his argument and he's, he's broadening it out to everyone, not just specific cases. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Uh, We don't have time to spend long in this little verse here, uh, but I just wanted to bring our attention to, to that one first direction in particular that kind of precedes all of the others, not just in coming before them, but in uh, logic. He says, have unity of mind. We're, here we see the reason why uh, a church's unity can't be on the basis of the need for unity. Unity and love are essentials in the church. We've seen that again and again in First Peter, actually. But it's important that our unity is not unity for the sake of unity. It's not unity at the expense of all else. It's unity of mind that we are called to. I'm, I'm not sure. What was the translation that you had there, Malcolm, for that moment? Or anyone got an NIV? Yeah. So, so sorry? Like-minded. Um, the literal words there are be unified in your minds. Um, and, and that's so important. Christian unity is first and foremost unity of what we believe. Or rather, who, who and what we believe in. The church that has unity of mind will be a strong church. Or a church that lacks unity of mind will always collapse. The church that seeks unity for the sake of unity that says we will be united and we will be loving because that's what we should do has actually pulled the rug out from underneath unity and love, you see. It's removed the, the, the foundation of why we are unified, why we love one another. And so as we are unified around belief in the true person and work of Jesus, of God, then we are equipped to, to love one another. Indeed, that, that unity of mind, that common belief uh, in the dazzling light and love of God, it builds us into a people who have these other qualities that he sa- states here. The, the sympathy is rooted in the sympathy that God has had towards us and that we are agreed upon as a people. The brotherly love, the tender heart, those things come from God's love and God's tenderness towards us, which we believe in, which we know. Our humble mind comes from knowing the truth together of how humble God has been with us. Isn't that a remarkable concept that God has been humble? The creator of the universe lowers himself. And so having, having now given us that, that under, those underlying qualities that Christians need to be able to bless, Peter gives the central commands of this first section. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Peter knows how hard this is. Okay, this is a big call. It's a difficult thing to tell people when you're reviled, don't revile in return. When you're, when, when you, I can't remember what the wording was, but I loved it in Malcolm's version. But uh, when, when you are hated, when people are hating on you, don't return that. That's so hard, so contrary to our nature. And, and, and so knowing that, he actually has intentionally given us this language that points us not just towards what we should do, but towards what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the one who didn't return evil for evil. Do you remember this? This was in chapter 2, not very long ago. He wrote this. He did not return evil for evil. He did not, when he was... Uh, 
mocked, he did not threaten, he didn't return reviling for reviling. But instead, he died to bless those who didn't deserve it. We have all been wronged by someone at some point, haven't we? Maybe Charlie is the exception. Um, but, but maybe not, you know. I've held him when he wanted milk. You know, we, we covered that a few weeks ago. But uh, <laughs> we've all been wronged. I, I, think, I think we can all relate to that feeling of someone who has offended us. And, and, and not just in a, in a superficial way, in a way that we're actually certain that they are wrong about this, that we should, uh, in some sense, be offended by it. And, and Peter calls us here, be to them like Jesus has been to you and like he is to you now. Love in the face of opposition. And then he gives us this deep and incredible motivation for that. He's going to give us a few actually, but this is the first one. He says, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We bless in the face of opposition with a sure hope of eternal salvation in sight. Blessing in the face of persecution is not what saves us, be sure, but it is part of the good works that result from our salvation. And therefore, they are what lead us to that final blessing. That living a life to bless others is the road we walk on on our way to that final blessing. And you see how this, how this motivates us. It's, it's pretty clear, I think. But, but no matter what opposition you face, no one can take away that final blessing. No one can take away your final hope. Whether it is opposition from a government, opposition from, from a workplace, opposition from friends, family, even as close as your, your, your very marriage relationship, no one can take away final hope from a Christian. It can't be snatched. No law can remove it. And so we can bless in return because they can't threaten what is most important to us, no matter how much they try. And Peter focuses us in on that hope in that little quotation in verses 10 to 12 when he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He's saying, if you want uh, what is good, don't go after this life. The life to come has greater life than this life. The life to come has good days that will make your best day. Think of your best day, right? Maybe a wedding day. Maybe, maybe yours. Maybe one of your kids. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe you just think of uh, the good sleeping that you kind of wish you were having right now. Uh, <laughs> think of your best day. The worst day in the life to come will outstrip it by, by a, an infinite amount. So don't strive and fight and, and bitterly pursue the joys of this life. We don't have to do that. We can bless, focused on the blessing that is to come. And verse 13 and 14, they draw out the implication of that. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Might sound funny, right? I mean, realistically, people can harm you for doing what is good. He's literally said that not that long ago. Uh, he's, he's built this expectation that we're going to be harmed for following Christ. There's going to be trials in that. But, but we need to look at this. He's painting this in the eternal sense. They can't harm you because they can't take away what's most important. 
And that's why he goes on in verse 14 and says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That's important. What he's talking about here is suffering for righteousness sake. We need to note that again. It comes up a few times. Suffering for doing good, not suffering for doing the wrong thing or for being obnoxious. Uh, We've seen plenty of Christians who've suffered for being obnoxious. That's a thing. It's not what we're called to. But for those who live the changed life now, even if you go through significant suffering in the current time, in the final sense, in the only sense that ultimately matters, you'll be blessed. And now he explains uh, on, on a few levels how that looks in us. He says, so don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled by the troubling things that happen in this world. And then he tells us what we are to do uh, when, when troubling hard things happen and how we are to be prepared to do it. In your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. We're called to witness the goodness of Jesus in the face of suffering. We are called to witness to it and we prepare ourselves to do that. Did you see that there? By holding up Christ to ourselves. Honour Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. We, we remember who he is. We remember what he has done. We hold him up to ourselves first and foremost. And to each other as a people then. And, and, and so do you see what happened there? If we hold Jesus up to ourselves, if we, hold, if we are holding him high in our hearts, we will hold him up before others as well. We'll be equipped to do that. And he gives us some specific direction on how that looks. Uh, this is so practical and so useful because like I said, we've, we've, not we personally necessarily, but, but maybe we've done it obnoxiously in the past. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, I'm still going to slander you for it, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. So to give the broad picture here, what we've got, when Christians are led to suffer, we respond differently. We're called to bless our persecutors fully to the extent that Jesus has blessed us. We are called to live for the good of those who oppose us. That blessing, that showing of honour to those who oppose you reveals a different hope in you to those around you. And as you live the life that holds up your hope in Jesus to yourself, you'll be prepared to lift him up to others as well. With the same gentleness, the same respect, the same honour that we didn't deserve but that he has shown to us because you you love your enemies because he loved his enemies us this is how peter envisages the gospel going out this is this is what we need isn't it we we long for the gospel to go out here don't we he pictures a persecuted people uncrushed and holding out jesus to their enemies Telling them we were hopeless. We were no people. We had nothing and we were far from God. But Jesus died. Because Jesus died. Because he carried the weight of the sin and the punishment that we could not. We have been brought near to God. We have final. We have indestructible 
hope in him. You could have it too. We love you. We don't hate you no matter what you do. It's sort of like before you go on holidays. You guys going on holidays? Who's going on holidays in the next week? Be honest. Be honest. You're going to Air Peninsula with the Kleinigs for a research trip, are you? The Lord calls us to honesty, Dad. Uh, but um, do, you, do you know what I mean by this? If, if you have a holiday coming up, particularly one that you're really looking forward to, you know, maybe you're visiting your sister. Uh, uh, it changes how you act. It changes how you are now, doesn't it? Um, let me give you an example. Last year, we uh, came down here. We were living in Brisbane still. We came down here and visited mum and dad, and we visited Crystal's parents over in the Murraylands. Uh, and our kids were thrilled that that was happening. They loved their grandparents. And, and particularly when we lived up there, they really longed to see them, you know? And... Uh, and and every morning, or most mornings for quite some time after we told them that we were going to go and visit, they would leap out of bed. Sometimes they were a bit slow getting out of bed at other times. But, 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 but then, at that time, they would, they would jump out of bed. And the first question in the morning was, Mum and Dad, is today the day? Are we going to see Mara and Papa? Mama and Papa? Actually, sorry, that's not accurate. The first question was, Mum and Dad, is it June? Um, <laughs> yes, we told them we were going to visit. And then we told them that it was in June, and it was, it was March. Um, and so we had this extended period of, of this, this repeated question, and actually this was what cued us to start uh, using a calendar in our house and teaching our kids how calendars work, because, because the, the question kept coming up and it was so obvious that they were keen and they couldn't quite fathom what three or four months looked like. <laughs> it got difficult. But, but, but do you relate to that? Hard things become less hard when freedom is coming, right? If you're going to be on the beach next week, you can work more shifts this week. If you're going to be visiting those relatives, if you're going to be with people who are just peace and joy to you next week, it's easier to deal with the people who are hard this week. Do you relate to that? You know, that, that also comes with the, the weariness of the long period of time just before holidays, but, but we'll leave that by the by. Hope stands out. That's the point. Um, and people see that, don't they? Like, like when you're when you're excited. Um, like we've got we've got we've got a, a, a nurse at work who's who's taking long service leave later this year, and she's just excited about it. Everyone's asking her, you know, oh, you know, you just seem like a new person lately. Um, she, she's also. Just, just found a new fella as well, but, but that's by the by. And, but, but like everyone's like, oh, you just seem so new and so happy. And, and like it just, it just comes up. People ask her because she seems different. I hope she's not going to be upset if she hears this. I'm not being too specific. Um, hope stands out. Joy stands out. And, and, and don't we share it freely? You know? If someone says to you the week before the Bahamas, I've never been to the Bahamas, I assume they're good, um, you know, well, you seem, you seem really happy this week. How ready are you to say, I'm going to be on the beach next week? You know, like maybe you don't dance a jig, um, but, but that's just by the by. Uh, <laughs> this is the same thing in a bigger sense. 
you know? Uh, here, here are the differences. The differences are that our hope in heaven is secure. Our eternal hope can't be taken away. Holidays can fall through. That's a heartbreaking experience. You're never going to suffer the heartbreak of the hope of Jesus being taken away if you have it. Nothing can pull it out from underneath you. Our hope is eternal. You know, you go away for a week and the first few days are great and then the last few days are like, oh, oh it's almost done. And I don't know if you get that, I get that. But, but, but it never ends. It's infinitely more glorious than any holiday, even one to Berners Beach. Right? Um, and, and final connection, uh, final difference rather, our hope, our eternal hope is the hope that everyone needs to hear about. No one actually needs to know about your Bahamas getaways. In a way, it's just us showing off, isn't it? But, but people need the hope, and people can have the hope that is yours. We, we, we have, are surrounded by a world who desperately needs us to speak of it to them. Even if they oppose us speaking it to them, it is needed. And now turning back to the Bible, Peter turns us back to the shining example of Jesus again. And he writes, For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Like Dad said, if you want a memory verse, you almost couldn't do better than this. This is such a beautiful truth. Such a precious verse. Peter has called us to live a life that is ready to suffer in a Christ-honouring way because we have hope of blessing when he returns. And now Peter shows us that Jesus has gone before us in all of these things. He is our example, and his work establishes our hope. We say that really clearly in this opening verse. Christ for, Christ also suffered. Notice that for and that also there. That means that this is the undergirding, the reasoning for what's come before, for everything that he's called us to do. Christ is our reason. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter has just said, you need to be ready to suffer for the sake of righteousness so that you might hold out a reason for the hope that is in you to those who, who see it. And now he says the reason behind that is that Christ also suffered. Christ is your example in suffering. But not just that, his suffering was the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered for you. He suffered for for me, that he might bring us to God. Salvation. Again, hammering that point that we see again and again in First Peter and in the Bible as a whole. Our hope is God. The primary fact of salvation is not that we look forward to heaven or to a wonderful house one day or to no more sickness or no more pain. And those are all realities that are coming. But our hope is God because he is better than all of those things. And Jesus died to bring us to God. We are God's people. His spirit dwells in us. And we will one day live with him forever. But this, this is where it gets a touch on the complicated side, uh, if I may say that. Um, these next verses uh, from, from actually, I can't um, verse 19 onward, um, 
They're really regarded by most commentators as the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to front load this here and say Martin Luther. You guys heard of Martin Luther? Of course you've heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther commented that we just didn't, he just didn't know for sure what this passage meant. John Piper, Robin quoted John Piper before. John Piper says that there are parts of this passage we just can't figure out for sure. One commentator calculated it and said there was something like 180 different variations of this passage, these next verses, different combinations, theoretical ones, not all ones that a specific person has held to. Um, and so we're going to go through all of those now. No, no. <laughs> I'm glad that Rod caught that was a joke. Someone had to. But, but really, I'm, I'm emphasising that. I, I, I realise this feels like a bit of a break in what we're doing here. But, but ultimately, I just wanted to say that whilst I have an idea of what this text is saying in its, is its sections, I'm far from 100% on some of these things. Uh, and, and more importantly, more, much more importantly, the things we can know from this text are clear. The main point of what Peter is saying, which is that the suffering of Jesus provides our example and establishes our hope, that doesn't change regardless of how you read these next verses. And so if you want to talk through the different options here afterwards, then feel free to come and get me. But, uh, but I'm, going to, I'm going to walk you through how I see this. Okay? Um, and so, so having said that, let's, let's have a look at these verses uh, from the end of verse 18 through to verse 21. Read this with me. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Ready? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Raise your hand if you understand everything that just went on. There was a nod there. Swap? No. Um, no, no, you, you can probably break the confusion down into these kind of four parts, really. Um, what does Peter mean that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? What does it mean that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey? Why does Peter then start talking about Noah and the flood? And finally, maybe most controversially, what does Peter mean when he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? And really, my reading of this is that Peter actually just builds a picture of what Jesus has done as our perfect example. I, I, I feel that that's the clearest reading of this text. When he says, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, I believe he's talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is more than one way to do that, uh, to read that. But he came, he was put to death on the cross, but God raised him from the dead in the spirit, not to say that it wasn't a physical resurrection, but that the power of the spirit of God was what raised him. So he is our example of suffering in hope. And then he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, he's talking about Jesus going in the new life of the spirit. 
uh, in the resurrection and proclaiming the gospel to those imprisoned under sin. That is humanity, us or our counterparts. You know, uh, He's saying that Jesus proclaimed the gospel to humanity through his death and resurrection. And after his resurrection, he continued to proclaim it. So Jesus is our perfect example in suffering and offering a reason for the hope that he had. Proclaiming the good news. And then he says, because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Touch confusing. But speaking generally of humanity, he points to the greatest judgment that has ever happened. Not the greatest judgment that will ever happen, but the greatest pouring out of judgment that we see in the Bible. And he says, humanity didn't obey in the face of judgment. So, so what we've got basically so far, recap, Jesus is our perfect example in suffering, offering a reason for the hope that he had, even to a rebellious humanity. And then Peter continues to talk about Noah, and I think he is holding out the story of Noah, the, the flood and the ark, uh, as, an, as a picture of what happens in Jesus. An imperfect one, but an image. He writes, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, why does he bring us to Noah? Um, aside from what I've already said about judgment being in view and rebel rebellion of humanity, he's, he's looking at that situation and he's, he's talking about how Christ suffered once for the unrighteous so that he might save us, bring us to God. Uh, and, and here's this picture of those who were brought through the flood by the ark. That they might be brought safely through. And that is like what Christ has done for us. I believe he's using an, a, a word image or a historical event as an image here. Uh, when we were brought by Christ safely through the flood of judgment that was ours for our sin to God. Are you, are you with me? A bit. So finally, he writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And what he's saying there, I believe, is that baptism is a picture of that saving process. It corresponds to that image. Like the like the ark. Because remember, what is baptism? We'll re revisit this a few times in the coming uh, months. Baptism is us finding our new identity in Jesus. When you're plunged into the water, is an image of you dying with him. Going down into judgment that he has carried for you. And... and and, and acknowledging your judgment's been carried out. He's your ark. And it's an image of you rising up with him. You're identifying with his death, with his resurrection. It's a picture that identifies Jesus as your ark, who takes you through the flood of judgment to life. And he's not saying that the act of baptism itself saves you. It's funny, we can, we can read it that way, but 
But I think it's clear because he, he immediately says, and why would he say this otherwise? Not as a removal of dirt from the body or, or dirt from the flesh, as the, uh, the New American Standard Bible, I think it was, said, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. That's what saves you, the resurrection of Jesus, an appeal to God to save me. It's not a ritual that cleanses you of sin. It's an appeal to God through faith. Faith is what saves you. And baptism is a picture of having been saved in faith, of our salvation working out. And it's based on the fact of Christ rising. Therefore, I will rise too. Are you with me? Jesus is our perfect example in suffering, offering a reason for the hope he had even to a rebellious humanity. And, and we experience that, we see that in, in the reality that we see in our baptism. So really, I think this whole section is just holding out Jesus, basically, as the perfect example of suffering for good as we are to do. He does it better than us. He does it perfectly. He suffered the indignation and the cursing and the anger of the world against him. And not just that, but the flood of judgment that we deserved. Like an ark that carried us through the flood of judgment, he has saved us. And his suffering led to fearless declaration of the gospel and salvation for sinners who now identify with him. And you see that this example he gives of the suffering of Christ for our salvation, it's not just a distant example. It's not just like if I said to you, you should obey the speed limit. Look over there. There's someone who is obeying the speed limit. An example for you. It's not, a, it's not just a picture of someone who's distant from me. It's a picture of the one who actually died for me. For us. For the people of God. The suffering of Christ is both our example and our motivation. Because all that's been achieved for us, all our blessing, all of the uh, gospel sharing that might result from our suffering, uh, it's all a result of the suffering of Jesus in the end. It's all thanks to him. It's all because of what he has done in suffering and dying on the cross and rising to new life and giving us a good conscience through his resurrection and so so jesus we look to him as our example and of what it means to suffer for the sake of righteousness and why we would suffer for the sake of righteousness for the sake of the lost because he suffered for us when we were lost <coughs> sorry and even more than that read this last verse with me we've got one more verse left See where Jesus is now. See where our example has gone. Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This one who died for us, this one who is our ark, our salvation, whose death in the flesh and life in the spirit is our hope, he reigns over all of creation over every 
power. He rules supremely and so our hope is utterly secure. Because we hope for him, right? And he is completely undefeatable. The end that he has established, that we will dwell with him in perfect peace forever, it will come about because he reigns. It's worth saying for Peter, uh, the suffering, the death, the resurrection and the glory of Jesus were not distant realities that he'd heard about. Right? The guy writing this letter, he, he'd experienced it. This isn't some armchair theologian sitting back and, and writing a bit of a treatise. He himself had walked with Jesus. He'd known Jesus for the entire length of his ministry on earth. And, and he'd known his righteousness and his perfection. He'd seen it firsthand. He himself had seen Jesus taken by soldiers and by the religious leaders. He had seen him from the courtyard as he was beaten and mocked. He had denied Jesus and run personally. He had seen Jesus die. He had spoken with the risen Lord. Can you imagine that? Talking to the person who died three days ago? Seeing them victorious over death? demonstrated in the fact that they've got a gaping great hole in their side and they're alive. Because it can't hold them down. He had watched Jesus ascend into heaven on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And as a result, Peter himself had been able to live a life that returned blessing for suffering. Because he was certain of the truth of his hope, as we can be certain of the truth of our hope. So I want to wrap up today um, and give you just two challenges. Um, you know, maybe you have been coming for a while to a church, and, and you hear me say this a lot here, and it is so essential that we say it. Maybe this still doesn't seem to make sense to you, why people would suffer for hope, why they would suffer for this hope that is in Jesus. Why would these people be willing to give so much? For, for some future hope that's in Jesus. And, and, and the reason's super simple. There is one who has suffered for us. To give us a hope that is infinitely more than the suffering. Infinitely more than anything we could ever lose. And infinitely more than anything we could ever gain in this life. So the challenge there is obvious and simple. The hope can be yours. Believe. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus to save you. He is faithful to do so. But second, uh, I want to challenge us to see something here. That living in a way that reflects the hope that we have by doing good, by sharing the good news of what we have been given and, and suffering for that is not to be considered remarkable for Christians. It's not, it, it's actually envisaged by the Bible as, as, and this is scary, but normal, okay, a part of the Christian life. I say that because we so often work to keep our security and safety here and now. Uh, we, we, and what we're doing there is we're working to avoid suffering that reflects a secure hope in eternity. 
We work hard to be culturally acceptable as Christians a lot of the time, both personally and corporately. Uh, we work hard to have favourable laws, to have a, a, a Christian nation like that ever actually existed here. And more personally, we often confuse what is best for us with what is safest for us. Those are separate things. The Bible never calls us to work for that or to waste our energy pursuing that. It, it tells us to give the hope that we have to others, whether we suffer for it or not. This plays out in so many ways, so many spheres of life, so many aspects of how we live. I wanted to draw you into one, and I'm afraid, uh, reflecting on it right now, it's actually one that's mostly just relevant to us right now, but in some ways it reflects on all of us, because we all play a part in uh, how we raise the children of the church. For the Christian parent today, this is a real struggle. Hopefully you'll be able to see this reflecting out into the situations of your life. We're going to talk universal things in one situation. It's a real struggle where the line is between protecting your children and discipling your children. I'm sure I'm, many of the people who have had kids grow up here will have felt that struggle as they've gone. How we as Christians' parents, uh, we, we get worried and we fight for the here and now security of our kids. Um, and that, that's not all wrong. I'm not saying that, that that's entirely something we shouldn't be doing, but, but, but we miss the reality when, we, when, we, when that is our focus. We miss the reality of discipleship in the hard things. Uh, we miss the reality of where Christianity flourished. You know, think about it. Where did Christianity first launch, first pick up pace and, and spread like wildfire throughout the earth? It wasn't in security and it wasn't in safety. In one sense it was. It was in a secure hope and a safe salvation that could never be taken away. But it was also in the face of a world where, where neighbours, where employers, where governments, where even, even spouses were were hostile towards faith. That's where it flourished. And not just the first generation of Christianity, right? Like once, once a bunch of adults had been saved, if it was just adults, which it wasn't just adults, there were kids involved in that first round, but once they were saved and they had kids, did it die out? Did it end? We're sitting here, aren't we? Well, I'm standing, you're sitting. Um, Owen's lying down. But <laughs> it flourished. In a hard situation. See, I think often our fear is that our kids, uh, that, that salvation will be snatched away from them if it's a hard Christian life. That they won't want it, that they will look for their security elsewhere. And that's a genuine fear. And I feel that fear myself, don't get me wrong. And we feel it for ourselves as well. It's not just for our kids. But, but, but they were first forged. They were first flourishing. In fact, it's done its best. You could make a decent historical case for in hard situations. Um, this isn't quite the same, but, but our recent season as a family has been uh, complex, and it's been a complex struggle with something like this. Um, when we moved on down here and, and, and got into this, we, um, 
have faced the real struggle that uh, our kids have been the only kids in their church. We're, in our church we were in, in Brisbane, they had quite a few peers, um, and, and, uh, and that's been a real concern for us as to how that will affect them, um, whether, whether that will be damaging to their faith, whether they will feel the pull away from Christ. That's still a fear that I feel in my heart even now. Um, but what's been actually amazing has been to see their faith flourishing in this. And you will often find Christian parents who have had kids in hard situations, uh, who, who've stepped out in faith into a place where the world would say, wow, you're going to turn your kids off this. And, and the kids have flourished. Let me um, give you one story from our, from our recent weeks. Uh, a few weeks back, we um, were getting to re- ready to leave the house, right? Um, and, and it was after we moved into the hall and um, Owen and I were putting on shoes in the hallway of our house. Uh, and Charlie was still asleep uh, on the other side of the door that we were right next to. And uh, Owen starts singing. I think it was In Your Hands or Jesus Is Better, one of those things, really quite loudly. Uh, and and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm there doing up my shoes and I was like, oh, Owen, shh. No, 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 quite so loud. Charlie's asleep. But Charlie's asleep. And he goes... But I can sing loud at church, right, Dad? I went, well, yeah, yeah, of course you can sing loud at church, Owen. And he goes, oh, great, because, you know, I, I want other people to hear me singing. I want, I want, let me get this right. If we sing loud, people walking past on the street might hear us singing about Jesus, and they might believe in him and start following you. I, parent pride moment? I don't know. But um, <laughs> I just... I wish I had that faith when I was a five-year-old. Like, and like, it's it's amazing. And like, 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 and that's that's what's flourishing onto the scene in the life of a child who's lacking Christian peers, who's 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 really uh, facing a lot of difficult situations. Um, let me tell you one more story. It's not not from our lives. Um, there was a book I recommended a few weeks ago, Elliot Clark's um, Evangelism as Exiles. Um, uh, and he tells this story in there. So, so, so Elliot Clark and his wife, uh, I'm not sure if she, he mentions her name, and I'm just bad at remembering names, but it uh, took me a while to remember his. Um, they were on the mission field in, uh, in a Muslim nation in Asia that they can't name because, because it was illegal for them to be there as missionaries. Um, and uh, he tells this story of one day, he and his wife were in the house at opposite ends, and he hears his wife gasp. And he runs to the other end of the house, uh, and he thinks she's hurt herself or something, but he gets into the room and looks, and they're out the window 100 yards away. I don't know what 100 yards is. I'm sure that many of you do, but uh, it's, it's a distance. Um, he sees his son, his young son, facing off with a group of neighbourhood boys. In fact, they were, they were the rough boys in town. Um, what they? I think, I think he said their, their nickname in the town, which doesn't translate particularly intimidatingly into English, was the rough uncles. Uh, <laughs> And, and there they are, and the roughest boy has a football-sized rock above the head of his son. Ready to hit him with it, ready to knock him down. And he freezes, he doesn't know what to do, and I relate to that, because that's terrifying. But as he watches, it diffuses, and the boy puts down the rock, and his son runs home, 
uh, fairly quickly and has a hug from mum and dad and, and, and they're all like, oh, thank goodness you're safe. And, but then the, the question comes up, what happens? Let me, let me read you a quote from this book. Um, he told us they had come up on him without warning. The rest of the neighbourhood kids usually avoided any contact with them. The group knew he was a foreigner and thus presumed he was a Christian. They asked if he believed Jesus is God's son who died on the cross. That's a scandal in many countries. That is, is punishable in many countries, sometimes by death, as a, as a blasphemy against national laws. When our son answered in the affirmative, the boys were incensed and threatened him with stoning. So that's what was happening. My wife, who by this time was almost beside herself, asked him, so what did you do? To which he responded, I told them I wasn't afraid of them. I told them they could kill me, but that didn't matter because I would just end up in heaven. They didn't know what to do. They put down the rock. Not saying that's how that situation works out every single time. Not saying that we don't get hurt along the way and our kids don't get hurt along the way. Uh, but, but I want my kids to have that kind of faith more than I want them to be sheltered. I want them to know where they're going. More than they know that they're perfectly safe here and now and have everything they want here and now. More than I want them to be free of exposure. To, to a liberal left ideology that, that I'm going to have to struggle against. I want them to face a world that opposes them with the bold faith of Christ. And that's what we're told to expect. And that's what we as adult Christians are called to. And why would we think it any different? Why would we want to leave, leave, leave our kids in anything but bold faith that faces persecution? It, it can flourish beautifully in hard circumstances. So I think as Christian parents and as Christians, uh, we need to have a hard look at our motivation sometimes. Um, and, and, and I say that to myself first. Right? There's, there's been plenty of times when, when I've erred on the side of, of fighting for safety and security. And it's not just for our kids, though. I, I want us as a church to be a people who are willing to suffer. Willing to reflect the life of Jesus in how we suffer and to offer hope to the world around us in the face of suffering so that the gospel might go forth powerfully. We, uh, we started today and we're going to end today uh, on the, the story of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint because um, it didn't actually end on that beach. All five of those men died. A few of their wives lived because they weren't there and their kids. They stayed there with their children and reach that community. They tried again. In fact, by, uh, this guy who we're going to watch the video of, he says he remembers thinking his mum was mad because she said, we're going to try and go and live with these people who killed your dad. And they did. Not the whole community was saved, but they were received. And, they, and many came to know Christ through that. And... and uh, there's this powerful moment in there where, where this guy, and he's, he's, he'd have to be 60 or 70 in the video, um, and, and he says, ah. someone asked him one time, he was, he, was, he was in America with one of the guys from the Hualdani Indians, right? One of the guys who actively were the men who killed his father. Um, and and uh, they were talking, I think, to a reporter, and he said, 
is this, is this the man who killed your dad? Is that actually him? Like, I could fathom forgiving him, maybe, but loving him, I couldn't get my head around. Um, and, he, and he says, is this actually the guy? And, and he answers with yes, and then he goes, but I had to stop myself there, because actually, no. This man looks like the same guy. He shares many of the same characteristics with the same guy, but he's not the same man. He's a new man in Christ. You know, their love in the face of having their husbands killed. You know, what, what could be harder than that? Resulted in, in the powerful working of God's spirit in saving so many from that community. When Christians stand up with love in the, in the face of suffering, when we bless like Jesus has blessed us, it's such a, a powerful thing. And so I want to take us to a time of communion now, remembering that Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And I want us to dip this bread and to drink this juice and remember that that was done for us and we are called to live that life. With, not with... Not with long-suffering frowns on our faces, but with joy knowing that we have hope that is bigger than any of us. So why don't, you, why don't we pray and then we'll, then we'll do this. Thank you, Lord, that you are bigger than any challenge we might face. No restriction of religious freedom can restrict our religious freedom in the truest sense, Lord, because we are free in Christ. No uh, persecution can take away our hope. No enemy can defeat our kingdom that we have been brought into because our king died. Because you, Jesus, died on the cross and carried our punishment and rose again. And Lord, you reign over the highest heaven over every detail of this world, over every power that is above us, you were above them. Help us to live in the joy of salvation, Lord, to live as a people who are willing to suffer. I feel my own insufficiency in this, and yet I know you're sufficient. So make us a people who declare it, Lord, without fear of judgment, without fear of uh, persecution or suffering, uh, with, with, with the joy of knowing that our hope is coming and you are our hope. Lord, please bless this bread and this juice to us and let it be a, a sure reminder to us, a statement to our souls of your good work that leads us to a life of following you and eventually to the great banquet with you forever. Amen.